Low libido is a very common and prevalent issue that many OBGYNs face in their clinical practice. It's estimated that about 10% of all women have changes in libido that cause personal distress. And today we'll explore the issue of low libido and some potential solutions that you can suggest and implement in your clinical practice. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, host of Sexual Health General Health on ReachMD, and joining me today is Dr. Leah Milheiser. She's Director of Female Sexual Medicine at Stanford University of Medicine. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy at the Congress today, and we really appreciate your insight on this topic. I know you have a very active and busy clinical practice and see the issues of lowered libido very often. Tell us a little bit about some of the questions that you may ask your patients and what are the common presenting symptoms? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me. This is great, and I'm so glad to be talking about my favorite topic with you today. You know, in my practice, I'm an OBGYN, and I specialize in gynecology and specifically female sexual medicine. So people are coming to me already with this concern of low libido. And when I'm talking to patients, I like to really look at where they are in the lifespan. So... As you all know, if you have a woman in her 20s or 30s or even in her teens who may be using, for example, hormonal contraception like the pill, she can have low libido as a result of that. Then fast forward to a woman in her 30s, maybe she's had a child and she's breastfeeding and because of all the hormonal changes, she's got low libido from that and then of course you're going into perimenopause and menopause. So really I'm looking at where she is in her hormonal profile and of course I always want to ask questions about what medications she may be taking that can have an impact on libido such as you know, an SSRI or any other medication that can impact libido like blood pressure medication or for example an aromatase inhibitor or for some women tamoxifen. So I know we're, we're moving away from the concept of women are so complicated, but really talking about the multifactorial issue. And I know you and I both share the commitment to not only sexual medicine, which involves veins, arteries, nerves, and hormones, but also the impact of sexual psychology, where she is in her life cycle. Is there a new baby? Is there a new boyfriend or a new medication? You brought up the topic of oral contraceptives, and that is a topic near and dear to both of us. And let's try to set the record straight a little bit about this issue. Certainly, there are a lot of women that have a temporal relationship. So when they start the contraception, there are some biological problems. What, what are those issues, and how do you cancel patients on that? Sure. So we know the, the way that the pill works is that it will increase a woman's sex hormone binding globulin, which basically diminishes her free testosterone. And so free testosterone, as well as estrogen, which is also lowered because of the pill, can play an impact in two places. One, in the vestibule of the, in the vagina, so it can cause vaginal dryness. And also it can lead to lowered interest in sex because of that decreased testosterone. And you're right, that can be temporal. So this could be when a woman first starts the pill. And for many women, it can be ongoing. And so we see in many women after several years of use, especially if she started the pill at a young age, that she can experience something called vestibulodynia, which is where a woman experiences pain with attempted penetration during intercourse. 
So we know that it can cause that. But, you know, you really have to look at the woman in the situation she's with, she's in. So if you have a young woman who's in a new relationship, you know, she's thinking more of, I don't want to get pregnant. Maybe I want to be on the pill because it's treating my acne. It's treating my PMS. So there's many other reasons she's going on the pill. And sometimes she, it's, it's enough that it, the impact that it has on her sexual function isn't as significant for her because it's all of the other positive benefits that the pill conveys sort of, you know, makes her feel like, well, okay, I've got a little, little bit lower of a libido, but that's all right because I've got all these other positive benefits. We also have to remember that the pill can prevent ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, colon cancer. So there's a lot of other reasons women go on the pill. But we know there are a group of women who have significant sexual side effects from birth control pill. And I think it's important for every clinician who puts women on hormonal contraception to talk about those potential side effects in the event that the woman experiences it and it's troublesome to her. Right. And I think that's a good point. It's almost a conspiracy of silence that people are not talking about the potential issues in terms of the overall impact in terms of oral contraceptives. And I know it's it's really challenging because, you know, having a baby is probably one of the most dangerous things a woman will do. And contraception really has changed the landscape of pregnancy and women's health as well. So I think we need to start talking about the potential issues. And, and you and I know that sometimes these issues can be permanent and irreversible. And those are pretty scary things that it it can change your almost your DNA and that your testosterone won't rebound to what it was like before. But we certainly know that libido is not only about testosterone, right? What are some other things that you are asking about, Leah? Right. So, you know, I'm not certainly not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor, but I think I've become one in a sense, being a gynecologist who works in sexual medicine. So I always want to find out You know, I go all the way back to somebody's childhood. What did they learn about sex growing up? And so what I found oftentimes, if a woman grows up in a home where maybe it was politically conservative, religiously conservative, if there was just sexual conservatism where sex wasn't talked about, what we can see long term is women grow up having potentially questions, issues, certain inhibitions about sexual activity. And so that can lead to lowered libido. We see women, of course, this is very important, I ask about abuse always. So if a woman has any history of sexual abuse, we know from the data that childhood sexual abuse can lead to lowered sexual interest as they get older as well. Of course, you want to find out about the relationship that they're currently in. Are there any issues in the relationship? Is there abuse in the relationship? Are there communication issues? Are there trust issues in the relationship? Of course, that can lead to lowered sexual interest. I also want to look at life stressors. So where is this woman in her life? As we talked about, you know, having children, we see today women have, you know, the, the woman is doing everything now. We're having kids, we're working full-time jobs, we're managing a home. And that, of course, can lead to, those life stressors can lead to low interest. We know from a study that was published by Cheryl Kingsburg last year that women who have low libido, we know that that can actually infiltrate all aspects of her life. And it can affect her friendships with, you know, the people around her. It can affect her children, her marriage, her performance, and her job, which can then cause more stress. So it's sort of this cascade of events that just keeps folding in on itself that leads to this problem where the libido isn't getting better. And in fact, it's negatively impacting everything around her. So, you know, my suggestion, and this is really important, 
Many of my colleagues will not ask a woman about her sexual function because they're afraid of opening the floodgates. They're afraid of the questions they'll get asked. And I think it's, the concern is that they just don't know how to answer the question. You can very easily find out about somebody's sexual function in less than two minutes and make a plan. All you have to do is say, you know, it's very common for a woman to experience sexual changes, whether it's because she's having children or she's breastfeeding or going through menopause. Are there any concerns that you have today about your sexual function? If someone says yes and you don't necessarily treat sexual dysfunction, it's very easy just to say, you know, that's very important and I want to put you with the right person and have a referral ready. If you are going to continue to see that person but you don't have time to say that's extremely important, let's make sure we have a follow-up appointment to deal with just that issue. Some really good points. We're talking today about low libido and how to broach the topic in a very busy clinical practice without you know, bottlenecking your practice. If you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. We're talking about low libido. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and I'm here with Leah Milheiser from Stanford University. Leah, I'd like to turn now to some potential solutions for this problem. As a busy clinician, we really want to do well by our patients and really try to help them help themselves. What are some practical suggestions that you can offer in a, in a quick visit for your patients? Let's say the, the patient doesn't want to reschedule or that seems so far away. You want to give them something tangible. What are some some clinical pearls that you have that you can share with our audience? That's a great question, and I get asked that by clinician colleagues all the time. What, what can I have in my armory to share with my patients? So, you know, the majority of our patients do, who have low libido do not have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. They do not have female sexual dysfunction. What they oftentimes have is just what we described before. I'm disconnected from my partner because of my busy life. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Give me a pill that will make me be in the mood again. So here are some things that women can do that are non-pharmaceutical. Right now, we don't have any FDA-approved drugs for treatment of low libido in women. So I start with looking at the relationship. So oftentimes, my patients will say, never get away with my partner. The kids are always around. Number one, find a friend where you can do an exchange where they can watch your kids. If you have close friends that you trust who can watch your kids for the weekend so that you and your partner can go away. And I always tell my patients, there is a rule. You are not allowed to talk about your children while you are on this date or this date weekend. And if you do, you have to limit it to no more than 15 minutes throughout the whole weekend. Or if you're at dinner, for example, no more than five minutes. You really want to feel like it's just the two of you again and really focus on the relationship. See, and one of the practical things that I always tell my patients is make sure you remove the kids' pictures from the bedroom. The bedroom really has to be a sanctuary for the couple. And very important, we lose sight of that. And, you know, you're bringing up really good points about stress and fatigue. I think those are big issues that we both address on a regular basis. What about stress and fatigue? How do you address those just uh, in your quick visit? Yeah, so um, fatigue, actually a, a great study was just published that shows that women are not getting enough sleep at night. And one of the areas that this is impacting dramatically is women's sex drive. So, you know, women should really be looking at how many hours of sleep that they're getting. Oftentimes I'll hear my patients say, oh, I'm lucky if I get five to six hours a night. Really, women women should really be getting more than seven to eight hours. We like to get eight, but they should be getting at least seven hours of sleep. That is one thing that they can do. Um, another thing that they can do is really practice mindfulness. This is really a, an important idea. 
and that women <clears throat> oftentimes don't stop to smell the roses and really appreciate what's happening around them. And so when a woman is with her partner, she's oftentimes thinking about, oh, I forgot to get that task done for work, or I didn't make the kids lunch, and when am I going to have time to do this? You know, that is not going to put a woman in the mood to be intimate with her partner. She's going to be so focused elsewhere. So practicing mindfulness, trying to keep your attention on the task at hand, which in this case is being intimate with one's partner, is really important. Finding ways to reduce stress in one's life. And I really want to go back, by the way, to the, um, the issue of intimacy. You know, I live in Northern California, and, and people want to be really close with their family. And I understand that I have two young kids. I love it when my kids are around. But for some reason, people don't like to lock the door in their bedroom. And the number one issue I hear is, well, I don't want to feel, let the kids feel like they're locked out. We don't want to lock the doors. But yet, we don't want them to walk in on the, us when we're having sex. So we don't lock them. I just tell people, get a lock on the door, lock it for however long it takes to be intimate with your partner, and also get the dogs out of the bed, get the children out of the bed. Right. And I always say, put a lock on the master bedroom door, and sometimes I even have to write it on a prescription pad, really as telling them (laughs) that this is a, a medical suggestion and it's not about being a bad parent. I know we both also advocate the use of sexual accessories, whether they're you know, involved in role-playing and maybe sexual boredom changes or self-simulators or vibrators, uh, moisturizers, lubricants. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so, you know, obviously when people have been in a relationship for a while, that novelty goes away. And so it's really important to keep the sex life in a relationship exciting. And so ways you can do that, as you just mentioned, are to bring in accessories. So obviously self-stimulators can be really useful, you know, for many reasons. One, it's important for arousal. It helps women achieve orgasm both before and during intercourse, for example. So it can increase that stimulation, which is good. I think another, you know, there are, of course, arousal gels that are on the market that certainly women can use. I always recommend that women do their due diligence when they're using these products and really go after products that have some data to show that they're safe and effective. Um, You know, role-playing can be really useful and certainly reading a lot erotic literature. I think, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, no matter what people think about it, I think it really changed the atmosphere for how women look at erotica. I mean, never in a million years would I think I'd get on a plane and have the woman sitting next to me reading a hard, you know, copy of... Fifty Shades of Grey, knowing that she's reading a sexual book next to me, and it's totally acceptable. So it's a different it's a different time we live in. So definitely, erotic literature, maybe erotic movies. Certainly, you know, like I said, role playing and just you know feeling your best in the bedroom. And I always tell my patients, you know, exercise is important not only for your health, but it's important for your self esteem. So I, you know, I tell people to exercise for their general health. I also tell them to exercise for their sexual health because how you feel after exercising gives you that self-esteem and confidence to be naked in front of your partner, to be comfortable just being in your own skin in front of your partner. And I I think you bring up a good point about empowering women to read labels. I also want to encourage clinicians to read labels, read books before you're making recommendations because sometimes the books may not necessarily be appropriate for certain patients under certain circumstances. So today we've been talking about lowered libido and how we can address it in a busy clinical practice. Thank you for being with us today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Leah, it's always a a joy and pleasure to have you on such a, a great 
breath of fresh air to help the average clinician really implement some important strategies to address a really common problem. I'm Dr. Michael Critchman. You've been listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash sexualmedicine to download this segment as well as others in the series. Thank you so much for listening. And Leah, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you'll come back again soon and talk about some other interesting topics in sexual medicine. Thank you for having me. This has been great.